Well, I imagine that they would have sat down just as you are on the side of a mountain on a grassy patch. Men, there were 5,000, and children and women, some say up to 20,000. It was springtime with hay fever, bees, new plants everywhere. And it was Passover time. This crowd, noise, dust, and hunger. As Jesus looks out to this crowd, he motions to one of his disciples. It's Philip. And he says something to him, hardly audible, but we can see that Philip screws up his face. And then another one of his disciples comes, motions to a small boy. He's walking with a, a little basket. And what's in it? It's bread. Barley bread, just five little flat pieces and two fish. And they're dangling it there just to show us. Well, then he gets everyone seated. His disciples are fanning out throughout the crowd. Was he going to feed this crowd with just bread and fish and just five pieces of bread and two small fish? He takes the food and he gives thanks and he begins to break them into pieces. Break, give, break, give, break, give. And as the pace of breaking and giving gains, people are receiving. And each of them are soon filled with bread and fish. They've all had more than enough. Twelve basketfuls more than enough. And everyone's holding their bellies and wondering, how did that happen? Someone pipes up, prophet. And another says, it's a prophet. And a third says, yes, the prophet is to come into the world. And as this rumor spreads like a fire through a dry paddock, the people call out, Yeshua, the prophet. This chant is slowly gaining in intensity and volume. And the sound is engulfing Jesus. And as the voices are rising, men reach out with their hands to try and grab at him and try and lift him up as their king. But Jesus, he pulls back, higher and higher up a hill, until he disappears into a mountain. I wonder if you've ever had to deal with someone who's hangry. Yes, I said it, hangry, the, the combination of hunger and angry. It's that sense of irritation and frustration and anger caused by the lack of food. I think everyone at one time or another has experienced this. And I can say for myself, 12 p.m., 6 p.m. every day, I get a bout of hangriness. I get snappy. I want things done now, but they're not done. I start to have cravings for all kinds of food that I might be expecting. While I'm sitting down in my dinner, I'm looking at my food hangrily. Why is it so hot? Why is it so cold? Why is everyone talking? I can't eat. Just trying to think about my food. And after three kids, I've become convinced that it's a trait that humans are born with. It's congenital. How do you know that a baby needs milk? They don't tug at your shirt sleeve. They don't say, can I have some milk? The way you know is when they let out an almighty cry. This cherubic-looking, angelic-looking face becomes a red tomato. And the only thing that can placate it is milk. So you're hangry even as a baby. 
Well, we talked about food, but can we be hangry for other things too? What about something you've desired for a long time? Maybe it's a new car or a fashion accessory. You know, some, your appetite's been stoked by, by these ads that are coming across your computer screen as you're, you're internet surfing. And so you're, you're waiting, expecting, and then boom, email comes in. Your tax bill has arrived. Instant hangriness. Irritated because you suddenly have no money to buy what you actually want. Your appetite for what you've set your eyes on cannot be satisfied. You're hangry about your material possessions. What about wanting to belong to a community group or, or a work team or a sporting team? And something is just missing. It might be the time, it might be relational dynamics, but the group's not gelling and you just can't seem to latch on to someone to have a, a friendship, someone to connect to. Loneliness, anxiety. In the midst of that, you start getting irritated. You get hangry about your relationships. This morning's passage is simply about hunger and how Jesus fills it. And sometimes we're so focused on our sensation of hunger and desire for something that we lose sight of what is actually needed to fulfill it. The chapter begins with a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 and their families. It begins with a hunger that requires physical satisfaction. And quite quickly it turns into a hunger for a political solution. The crowd seated the mountainside. They, they see Jesus do this amazing sign and they want to take him by force to make them him their king. They're hoping that it'd be the end of shame in their land, being occupied by a foreign power. And then in turn, it widens out to a much bigger hunger for their historical destiny as the people of God to be fulfilled. As Jesus performs this feeding, their minds would have gone into overdrive thinking. This is what they would have thought. Here's a miracle worker who in a short period of time has been publicly performing amazing signs and each of them showing how he has divine power. That's why they call him the prophet. And this sign, this feeding with bread and fish, it surely would have reminded them of an ancient story. The story of how one of their greatest leaders, Moses, prayed to God and brought manna, bread from heaven, down to feed the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And once you've got that story, you're reminded of the Exodus and the Passover, which is all part of God's rescue of Israel from Egypt. And here was Jesus preaching by the mountainside around the time of Passover, distributing bread with 12 baskets of leftover. Would it be too much to hope that 12 baskets might represent the 12 tribes of Israel? Would it be too much to think that this man would lead Israel into a second exodus to reclaim a national destiny as God's people? But Jesus wants none of that. He defies the crowd. He, he defies the will of a hungry crowd and an angry crowd and that's a dangerous thing to do but he does so for a reason he wants to reorient their spiritual appetites and this morning he wants to reorient ours so that hunger so that we hunger for him the true bread of life and so as we look at John 6 together today I want to look with you at a portrait of Jesus as the bread of life that satisfies our hunger 
as we move through this passage, we'll see that Jesus, he speaks, as it were, as if he were kneading dough. You know, beginning with just flour, water, and yeast, he's working the dough over and over again until it's ready for baking. Always with the same basic elements. Bread and food, belief, eternal life, and heaven. And as he debates with the crowd, he raises the stakes each time with the same truths about himself, provoking them and stoking their anger by denying what they're hungry for. He calls them and us to hunger for the right thing. So John 6 shows us that because Jesus is the bread of life from heaven, we must feed on him. First, we must hunger for food that lasts. We must hunger for food that gives life. We must hunger for food from heaven. And finally, we must hunger for food that is real food, real nourishment for our souls. First, because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for food that lasts. Now, the, the crowd find him on the other side of the sea from the night before, and they're puzzled by how he got there. And we won't go into that scene about the boat. But they found him, and they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Why are they seeking Jesus? What are they looking for? Jesus knows their hearts. He says, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They were looking for Jesus because they'd received bread, a free dinner, and they wanted to see how much more they could get. Their physical hunger was satisfied. Their curiosity was piqued, and they just wanted to see how much it could go. They weren't drawn to him because the signs he performed showed his divinity, his power, his character. No, they were overtaken by concerns for an earthly meal. And so he tells them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. There's food that spoils and food that endures. I wonder if you've ever left some groceries on your kitchen bench and just forgot about them. Maybe about a week later you go back and to your surprise, they look just as fresh and, and good as the day you bought them. Now, in our world today, we're more likely to be suspicious of food that after a week on a kitchen bench looks fresh, tastes great. You're wondering to yourself, what kind of chemicals have they sprayed on this thing? What kind of chemicals have they used to preserve this food? But in ancient days, fresh food was hard to come by. And without refrigeration, food would have gone off pretty quickly. And anything not consumed within a day or two would probably have to be salted or pickled in some way. And so Jesus reminds them of the temporary nature of things. Don't look for food which lasts for a moment. Look for food which lasts forever. And it should probe a question into our hearts because all too often the things we seek retain their value for just a short period of time. We live in a consumables culture. Fast food, fast fashion, fast jobs. Living in the fast lane means taking a short view of life. On deeper matters like friendships, intimate partners, our world has become mastered by what is practical and what suits me now. The tyranny of the now has overtaken our mindset on everything. And Jesus restores a sense of eternity. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life 
There's a character to something that lasts forever, something which is unaffected by the passage of time. And it's this which Jesus offers, not bread that lasts for a meal. And what's more, this food is given with authority. If you look at verse 27, it's food which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Ultimately, God has given his authority to the Son, Jesus himself, to give this food. When you pull out a banknote from your back pocket, take a look at what it makes it legal tender. What makes $20 value of $20? The signatures of the governor of the Reserve Bank, the Secretary of the Treasury, are both there. They vouch with authority for the purchasing power of that $20. And in the same way, the Son of Man is authorized by the Father to give food which endures to eternal life. So Jesus, because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for the food he gives. And that's food which lasts. This is food which he gives with the authority of God and is of great value. It's great value because it lasts forever. But secondly, it's of great value because it is a gift of life. And it's to this second thing that we turn to. Because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for food that gives life. Latching onto this value of eternal life, the crowd then asked the question, what must we do to do the work God requires? It's a question which, which is really interrogating the nature of what Jesus is offering. It must be of something of great worth because death is the great equalizer. In this earth, the great and small, the, the rich and poor, the just and the unjust, the righteous and the evil will all succumb to death. And so life, is of great value. And it's for this reason that Christians traditionally have, in all kinds of circumstances, defended the sanctity of life. Be it in seeking freedom from slavery and dignity for all human life or in protecting the life of the unborn, Christ's followers have seen the life breath of God in all who are made in his image. And so... We need to ask ourselves, as we encounter the one who comes with life-giving food, what are we to do? How do we get this bread? And like the crowd, we need to ask, what is it that God requires? And whereas the crowd asks about which many works God requires, Jesus simply responds that God requires one work. And it's for them to believe in the one God has sent. The one thing that God requires is belief in Jesus. It may seem incredible that such a precious gift as eternal life is to be had by believing. But that's the one condition that's required. It's not found in what the Christian church has required people to do or what Judaism or Buddhism requires. Or it's, it's not what any food trend or lifestyle trend has mandated for a good life or eternal life. It's what God has set as the condition. And this morning, this passage says that if you believe in Jesus, the one whom God has sent, you have access to eternal life. And if you do not, you do not have access to eternal life. And so maybe you're wondering along with me, why does God make belief the one condition? Why not use the amount of good works or karma or spirituality as the measure? Why belief? This question goes to the heart of what the Jewish religious system and what many religions are about. It's about the condition of oneself. 
which determines whether you deserve life or not. We get a glimpse of this when we go back to what the crowd's next question is, because they sense that he's talking about himself, and so they challenge him. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, why should we believe you? The one to be believed in needs to work for their credibility. Moses was credible because he delivered manna to their forefathers in the wilderness. And that's why the entire religion has been built on the laws and instructions he handed down. And in fact, as we mentioned already, the people revere Moses. And this feeding incident would have sparked off associations with what happened in Exodus 16. Manna in the wilderness. That very episode when the people of Israel grumbled against God, began to complain against his appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. They shook their fists at God. They vent their anger at being left hungry and thirsty in the desert. And yet in the face of this mutiny, despite rescuing them from slavery, God doesn't just let them die in the desert. God sends down bread from heaven to feed them. And the irony, of course, is that Jesus has just performed a very similar public sign. He fed the multitudes with bread and fish. Now, Moses calling down manna from heaven was a confirmation of God's presence with his people. Then what Jesus does with the bread and fish was an awesome display of divine power. They're meant to recognize him as a heavenly figure. They're meant to see Jesus' divine ability to provide for life. But they don't get it. They had it wrong when they looked to Moses as the one who provided the sign of manna. They were giving to Moses the glory and honor which belonged to God. And that's why they called Jesus the prophet, the second Moses. And so Jesus has to reorient them away from the laws and the festivals that the Jews claimed Moses had given them. He redirects them to see that it's God the Father who gives all things. To think otherwise was offensive to God. In verse 32, he says, Very truly I say, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. Even though we don't offend God in the same way, I wonder how much you and I long for the true bread from heaven. We often think to ourselves that the answer is found in how much we're willing to give up for it. But this morning, Jesus' words forces us to grapple with the fact that the bread of heaven costs us nothing, but it is not for everyone. You can't buy it with your time or money. You can't buy it with material goods or effort or even sincerity. It's free of charge, offered to everyone, and yet it is only received because God wills that you believe in Jesus. It's a strange situation for us in a consumer society. We tend to think, oh, we see something, we want to buy it, we put the money down and we get it. You see, on the one hand here, Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But on the other hand, it's only because of the Father's will that people even come to Jesus. Verse 37 says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. But what's Jesus driving at? And what we have here is Jesus showing that what God requires and what God wills 
or intends, comes together to secure eternal life for the one who believes. These two, belief in Jesus and the assurance of God's will in securing that belief, they're entwined together to absolutely, rock-solidly secure eternal life for the one who believes. Like two sides of a coin, the one who believes in Jesus will receive eternal life. And it is God's own sovereign, powerful, unfailing will that the one who believes in Jesus will never be lost to him. And this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, this truth should be of immeasurable comfort and hope. It's a great assurance because we don't choose to be believers. We are believers by God's choice. There's no way that we can muck it up if we believe in Jesus because it's God's will that those who believe in him will be in his secure possession forever. And so all that's left for us is to ask for the gift of belief. Because God simply wants us to believe in Jesus, we must ask for the kind of hunger that leads us to Jesus, the bread of life. And for all who ask believing, he is gracious to give. Now, of course, the Jews continue, as their ancestors did, by grumbling. They don't see how Jesus could have come down from heaven. And so, again, they challenge Jesus. How could it be that this man, who was the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, how could it be that he came down from heaven? And so in verses 48 to 50, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. So in contrast to miraculous manna, which the Jewish ancestors ate and still died, this Jesus who calls himself bread from heaven, gives food which gives life. In the last year, um, making bread has been a little bit of a fascination for me because the fascination is in putting a few very rudimentary elements and ingredients together, of flour and water and yeast, and watch the entire process of this glutinous mass, my apologies if it was uh, gluten-free, this glutinous mass rise and bubble, it's an amazing sight. The dough is, in a very real sense, alive. There's yeast that's activated by warm water, and it's a live culture, which, which gives taste and flavor to the bread. And, and if you don't use powdered yeast from a supermarket, but wild yeast to make your starter, here's where it gets interesting. Wiki says, the flavor and nature of a given sourdough has been claimed that depends strongly on the location. The famous San Francisco sourdough grows only in and near the city of San Francisco. If taken elsewhere, local yeasts and bacteria will soon grow, and in a few months, the cultures will no longer be the same. In fact, if I were to create a sourdough starter, which I don't have, it'd be composed of wild yeast from my local environment. It's unique to my location. And so it is in this imagery about bread from heaven. Bread on earth has the character and flavor of death and decay. It's food that spoils if you leave a home-baked loaf out for more than two or three days, it grows stale. And beyond that, mold begins to develop. But bread from heaven has the character of life. And Jesus is exhorting the crowd to seek food, seek bread that endures to eternal life. It contains something out of this world. It's heavenly. It's divine. It's from creator God himself, the one who gives life. And then Jesus ratchets it up 
a notch. In verse 51, it says, This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's a statement intended to provoke, and depending on how you hear this statement, you'll come to very different conclusions. Because on the one hand, for those who come to Jesus, because God has brought them in belief, they'd understand that when Jesus speaks of eating his flesh, it's by believing in him. But those who have not learned that would maintain a physical, earthly reality to Jesus' words about flesh and blood. So Jesus takes a statement about himself, that he's the bread of life, and then he intensifies it, he turbocharges it, saying that the bread is his flesh. And this causes a division. A division between those who would believe and those who wouldn't. Between those who are among the dead and those who are alive. Those who are of the earth and those who are of heaven. These words, they divide and they turn away. You see, starting from a crowd of 5,000 eager men, ready to take up arms and serve him as their king, by the end of this episode, Jesus has only a handful, perhaps a few more than faithful 12 disciples following him. People are turned away from him because of the extremes to which he has taken the metaphor. And yet he says that the bread of life that would be given to those who believe would be his flesh. And so this is where we need to come to grips with what Jesus is saying to us personally. Jesus says, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. And what does it mean? And for that, we need to be reminded that the entire episode happens near that time of Passover. And John has been careful to speak of this as he describes the feeding miracle. In the Passover, a lamb was slaughtered and eaten with bitter herbs, by the family. It was to commemorate the way in which God's angel of death passed over homes of those believing Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. And what they'd do is they'd paint the doorways with the blood of the lamb. And what's the point? The point is that as God executes judgment on those who rebel against him and who disbelieve in him, he still provides a way for those who believe in him to live. The Passover would be the way through which believing Israel would remember that God makes a way to save that nation by taking the life of a sacrificed lamb in the place of sinners who deserve death. And when we read John chapter 1, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus declares that he is the bread of life and that his flesh is the bread that must be eaten, he's showing them ahead of time that his life would be taken and given like a Passover lamb. It'd be taken to be eaten in faith so that the sin of the world would be taken away and life would be given. And just like the Passover lamb of old, Jesus would give his life, his flesh, as a sacrifice so that men and women would have life. And that takes us to the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The centerpiece of the Christian faith is that the love of God demonstrated on the cross of Christ. It's there that Jesus gave his physical body and died a physical death to bring about to bring about as the Passover, uh, ultimate Passover lamb, spiritual life to those condemned to spiritual death. This morning we must hunger for heavenly food. We must hunger for food that when we eat it gives us life. The food that food is the bread of life and that bread is the flesh of Jesus. When he was nailed to the cross, his flesh was given, and you know what? It was to satisfy the hangriness of God. 
Not that God was irritated by hunger, but God who is so desirous of reaching out in love to sinners destined for death who have angered him by going their own way. This God nailed his own son to the cross that whoever would look upon him and believe in him would have eternal life and not die. God's hangriness, his anger was satisfied and his hunger for his own people was also satisfied. And so because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger the heavenly food that God has provided. And finally, because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for real food. The moment Jesus says, this bread is my flesh, an argument breaks out. But Jesus reaffirms his statement. He says in verse 54 to 55, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And then, as before, a little intensification. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. If you put everything together that Jesus has said so far, you'd see what we get is that Jesus is the bread that is from heaven who gives eternal life to all who eat of him. But now this final statement adds an extra dimension of remaining in him. Jesus promises to be in the one who believes. And in the same way, the one who believes is in Jesus. It's for the one who eats his flesh and drinks his blood. In both these images, Jesus is referring to how his sacrifice would be given in the offering of his blood, body and in the shedding of his blood. In other words, it'd be in his death. And believing this, he says, is real food. And sometimes when we're at home, I might bring out some afternoon tea and put it on a dinner table. And my youngest says to me, Dad, that's not proper food. Well, what he means, of course, is that it's not really dinner. It's not a real meal. It's not real food. It doesn't nourish you. It doesn't keep you going. And Jesus says that if we believe in him, in his death as bearing the penalty for our sin and remain in him, that would be real food for us. In a very deep sense, that's what being Christian is about, isn't it? Following Jesus in every circumstance. But the challenge is, how do we follow Jesus when it hurts? How do we follow Jesus when we can't see or enjoy the reality of the power of that eternal and undecaying life? There are people hurting inside and outside of this church today. They're struggling with sickness, cancer or disability. There are people who have emotional traumas that, that still have wounds that that too raw to even touch. And what about those of us serving in the church? Has ministry taken a toll on you? Even in the things that we might do in the service of God, don't we feel life draining from us? There are those of us who are not experiencing the power of life eternal, that unbreakable life of God in us. How does that make the Christian life plausible? How does that make the Christian life credible? How do we follow Jesus to the cross where he's persecuted and put to death. Jesus says we are to have real food and that's in believing in his death. Because Jesus' life was one of humiliation and glorification. He came down from heaven, he suffered on earth, died as a common criminal, but was raised by God the Father who accepted his sacrifice of obedience and now he sits on his right hand in glory. And this is the trajectory 
of the Christian life. We who profess to be Christians live it by being in Jesus. And so we live expecting suffering and humiliation, but anticipating glory and exaltation. We do so by being united in our whole being to the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the centuries since Jesus died and rose again, one of the most tangible experiences of this union with Jesus that followers of Christ enjoy is in celebrating the Lord's Supper. And there are many ways that we enjoy connection with Jesus. It might be reading the Bible or praying or worshipping with others. But this passage, in speaking of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, points in some way to the same idea of being joined to Jesus by faith. Don't get me wrong, it would have been a statement that caused immense controversy at the time. For the Jews, drinking blood was prohibited. For the Romans, this speech would have been associated with barbarians and cannibals. And this way of speaking, this metaphor of celebrating our union with him is what we do whenever we have communion. In the moments of Holy Communion, we get to share as a Christian community what is at the heart of the Christian life, to remain in, life, in Jesus and have Jesus in us. That vital, life-giving connection that a Christian needs to be spiritually alive. And so as we finish, let me ask you, how are you enjoying union with Christ in eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Not just at the Lord's Supper, but in many other ways. And some of us might say, we don't need any earthly reminders to help us keep us believing. I want to ask you, do we need to reset how we think about the way we look at God's word or pray to God or worship him or take communion? Do we need to rediscover what it means to be united with Christ in all of our life? Brothers and sisters, in Christ, what a shame it would be if we disregard any of these ways that God has given us and prepared for us to help us live in him. And how much do we deprive ourselves because we need the constant sustenance, the sustenance of the hope of resurrection that we have in Christ. Is there a moment when we don't need Christ? No. Is there a moment when we don't need to remain in him and him in us? No. The antidote to this is to pray for a renewed hunger. We need to pray that because Jesus is the bread of life, we must hunger for real food. As we close, verse 66 says, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They're offended, they're disgusted, they're repulsed by his teaching. And when he, when he turns to the twelve, he says, You do not want to leave too, do you? Peter answers, as only Peter could, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And today, if Jesus asks you, you do not want to leave too, do you? What will you say? And before you answer, I want to paint for you one last time that story that John began in this chapter to give a vision for what is to come. Jesus feeding the 5,000 reshapes how we see Exodus 16 and the giving of manna to Israel. In the wilderness, manna was temporary sustenance. In John 6, Jesus promises himself as the true manna that lasts forever. Back then, manna would be provided until they get into the promised land. In John 6, it would be real food in the promise of life eternal and hope of resurrection 
Whereas the ancestors that ate manna died, Jesus promises heavenly life to all who feed upon him. This morning, because we are of where we are in, in history, in the timeline of Christ's first coming, death and resurrection, we can stand and look back at these words of Jesus and we can have hope in them. We can trust them as words that bring eternal life and find in them sustenance for each day until he comes. Amen.